All right, you can turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue our study through this book. Uh, if you were with us last week, we talked about how to honor the Lord in everything we do, and, and Paul applied that specifically to relationships. We were to honor the Lord in our relationships, and we saw last week our familial relationships. Our, we, we saw sort of three categories overall of, of relationships that he addresses, husband and wife, children and parents that we looked at last week, and, and we mentioned this week a, a relationship, um, a third sort of category, is that of slave and master. And so we'll be looking at that this week. Uh, would you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word as we pick up where we left off last week, picking up in verse 22 of Colossians chapter 3. God's Word says this, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. God, we approach your word this morning with the reverence that it's due, knowing that, that you have given us this word for our benefit, to help us understand better what it means to live out as a Christian. God, would you teach us this morning, help us understand what this text means for us in our context today. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. If you do a historical study of language, you would find that languages change drastically over time. So much so that, that it may even be difficult for you to communicate in English if you were to travel back in time and begin to speak with other English speakers. The meaning of words change over time. So for instance, in the 1300s, the word naughty didn't describe someone who was being disobedient or unlawful. Like when, when my kids are, are being bad, I might call them a naughty child. Well, in the 1300s, the word naughty describes someone who had not. In other words, they were a poor person, someone who didn't have anything. They had nothing. And that word has changed over time to mean something completely different. Some words change in meaning so drastically that they actually mean the opposite of what they once meant. For instance, the word awful meant one time worthy of awe. Similar to how we would use the word awesome today. But if we say awful today, it means terrible, horrid. And so if, if you were to read a, a historical piece of literature that, that called a painting awful, and you didn't know this reality, then you would think that that, that author was calling that painting terrible. But if you understood the historical context of how that word was used in the time period, you would understand that they meant worthy of awe. When we read something 
that was written in history, you have to understand the term in the way that the original author understood them if you're to understand what the author is communicating. Well, the Greek word used today in our text that's translated here in the ESV as bondservant. In other places in this translation, it's translated servant. And in other places, it's translated slave. Before we address and more and look more deeply into the text itself, we have to understand a, a have to have a, a right historical understanding of that term and what it meant to Paul as he wrote it. Only then can we rightly apply what Paul is communicating in this text to us today. So I'm going to spend a little bit more time in my introduction than I, than I typically do to walk through sort of a, of what the Bible means when it uses this term slave or bondservant or servant. When we hear that term today, slave, our minds immediately go to American slavery, where Africans were, were kidnapped and taken over to America to work as, as slaves for white Americans in, in the colonies. And what our country did in American slavery in the 17th, 18th century was completely wretched and sinful. The Bible calls what, what our country did in that time period as man-stealing. If an Israelite did, under, did this under the theocracy of Israel, they were put to death. According to Exodus 21, it says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. And when we think of the term slavery today, this is probably what our minds immediately go to. Something like this, of what the Bible describes as man-stealing. But slavery in general in the Bible was very different than that. It wasn't centered on race. Rather, it was centered on economics. It was a completely different type of structure than that of American slavery. Even within the Bible, if you look at slavery in the Old Testament and then slavery in the New Testament, the way the Bible describes them, those are two very different things. So before we look at Colossians chapter 3, let's, let's talk a little bit about slavery in the Bible so that we can rightly understand Paul's perspective so let's start with sort of the Old Testament and work our way forward understanding how this term is used. In the Old Testament, slavery existed in different forms, in different areas, uh, in different countries. But in the Old Testament, the Bible specifically addresses the slavery that existed in theocratic Israel. That is, God's people where he was the ruler, his word was the law of the land. In Israel, slavery took even a couple of forms. Most slavery in Israel was sort of an indentured servitude. People would sell themselves into slavery to, to order to pay a debt or to secure the safety of, of themselves, to provide a home for themselves in the household of, of their master. If a Hebrew were to become a slave, they would work for six years, and on the seventh year, according to God's law, they must be then freed, unless they desired to remain a slave in that family. In God's law, if they desired because they loved that family and wanted to continue to be a part of that family, God's law allowed them, if they desired, to remain a part of the family. But other than that, they were free after six years. There were also slaves that were not Hebrews. Those slaves did not have a time limit on their service. And they usually came about after wars or, or people who were in great need who would die on their own apart from this. Um, if you understand the Old Testament world that people lived in, then you know that it was absolutely brutal. 
starvation and bandits and brutal leaders raping and pillaging and murdering were all just commonplace in the Old Testament world. They were just part of of the existence that, that you had to deal with if you lived during that time period. And so to be under the covenant of Israel with laws that, that protected you was a grace of God during this time period. And so if the choice was to, to starve to death or to be captured by a wicked nation or to, to come under this, the laws of Israel, under the covenant of Israel, then becoming a slave within Israel was a blessing and a grace to you. It rescued you from a completely brutal world. Only in Israel were there laws protecting slaves. And God's law was very strict in how you treated the servants in your house. God declared all humans as His image bearers worthy of dignity and respect. And if you were cruel to your bond servants, the punishment upon you was very strict, as we read, even to the point of, of death, um, if you were cruel to your, your bond servants. And so God in His grace allowed certain people to escape the brutality of the Old Testament world, to come under the protection of, of God's people as servants in homes who were treated as image bearers of God with dignity and respect. As you move into the New Testament, the slavery that we then now read about is not the slavery of Israel. Rather, this is Roman slavery. And so with the coming of the New Covenant, theocratic Israel is gone. All the, the, lay, the, 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 the laws concerning slaves are done away with. And so the, the reality that the New Testament writers were living under is now Roman slavery. That do not have the laws of Israel that protected slaves. In early Rome, slavery was absolutely brutal. I mean, you could literally do anything that you wanted with your slaves. You were considered a property of the master. You were not considered a person at all. And by the time of the New Testament, that was sort of early Rome, by the time of the New Testament, slave relations had begun to improve vastly, mostly because slaves who were treated well were better servants in the household. And so gradually you, you see a better relationship between masters and slaves. Many masters willingly freed their slaves. And so slaves were, were considered part of the family and you would get to be uh, so much so that, that when the master died that the slaves, many of them, were even written into the wills to, to, to receive part of the estate of, of their masters. Most slaves were released by the age of 30 and they had learned valuable skills and were able to then provide for themselves and integrate into Roman culture. Within Rome, there was also what is called debt slavery. And that was similar to sort of the indentured servitude of, of theocratic Israel, where people would sell themselves into slavery for a set amount of time in order to pay off a debt. And so slaves would include workers, doctors, lawyers, accountants, all kinds of workers would willingly sell themselves into slavery in order to have protection of that, to, have, uh, to be able to pay off debt if they had it. To be a freedman in the world, in, in this world, if you were not part of sort of the upper echelon, if you were not the, uh, part of the upper class, uh, you were in grave danger day to day. And so many people would engage into this um, sort of debt slavery where they would willingly come under the household as a servant, a bond servant in these homes. It wasn't based on race like we see today. And that's, in fact, why the, the ESV translates it often as bondservant, because that's closer to the relationship that existed during this time period where, where people were willingly coming to 
uh, families in order to sell themselves into slavery. Uh, but the root of this Roman slavery is still sort of that man-stealing type of slavery, even if in Paul's day in the New Testament era uh, they were beginning to be treated with dignity and respect. And certainly it was not like the, the theocratic Israelite slavery where you had laws protecting you. Uh, slavery was considered just an essential part of the economic system. And, but that's true really by everyone, the slaves and the masters, the rulers, everyone just considered a, 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 a sort of inevitable, uh, essential part of the economy during that day. It was how the world worked. And so what you see in the New Testament is the New Testament writers don't ever outright condemn slavery. And there's a reason for that. As one commentator said, he said this, he said, It is significant that the New Testament nowhere attacks slavery directly. Had Jesus and the apostles done so, the result would have been chaos. Any slave insurrection would have been brutally crushed and the slaves massacred. The gospel would have been swallowed up by the message of social reform. And so what the New Testament does do, though, is sort of sow the seeds for the destruction of slavery. Paul's goal was not social reform through political action. His goal was the proclamation of the gospel and seeing it have an impact on hearts. And so with texts like Colossians 3, our text this morning, many other places in the New Testament, it gives the foundations for Christians, for Christianity, to argue against the practice of slavery. So for instance, in the very next chapter in our book, in Colossians 4, we're going to meet a man by the name of Onesimus. That's in chapter 4, verse 9. Onesimus was a slave who stole from his master, ran away from his master, and he meets Paul. And his master was a member at the church of Colossae. His name was Philemon. And so Paul would actually write a letter to Philemon to tell him to receive Onesimus back. And here's how he says it. And this is, I think, important to understand Paul's view of slavery. He says this. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. What Paul does in that statement is dissolve the master-slave relationship and creates what he, the word he uses is, is a partnership between the master and the slave. There's this love and respect that is to be in place between them. The relationship then is to be much closer to that of an employer and an employee rather than what we think of as master and slave. And that's really where Paul is pushing them, what he's hoping for them as the gospel advances. Now, with debt savory in, in Rome, it was sort of already heading that way. And you add in this Christian love that the gospel demands, and what slavery really then becomes is a partnership an employee-employer relationship that benefits both. And so Paul didn't seek to directly abolish slavery, but his theology paves the way to, if that makes sense. All that to say this truth, as we get into our text here, that the closest thing that we have today to the master-slave relationship that Paul envisioned and hoped for was an employee-employer relationship. And so as we read this text, I think the most appropriate application for us would be to take this text and relate it, apply it to 
the employer-employee relationship. Or if, so if you're a boss, uh, then you have an instruction as a master, if you will. If you're an employee, you have instructions concerning uh, you, the relationship that you have with your boss. That's what Paul ultimately envisions, a partnership. All right, so that's my introduction. Uh, probably one of the longer introductions I've, I've ever given in a sermon. Uh, but I, I hope that information will help you not only understand this text as we work our way through it, but others in New Testament that speak about slaves and masters. All right, so let's move quickly here. Three guidelines for workers who have a boss that they work for with a central truth that applies to everyone, whether you are working or not. So the central truth is whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord um, that we read there in the text. And I'm going to have sort of three specific applications here for those for that relationship, employee-employer. So guideline number one, work with a sincere heart. Work with a sincere heart. Verse 22 helps us explain what that means. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In other words, your heart matters. Your attitude that is a secret to you in your heart that no one else knows, it matters. Because God knows it. Have a sincere heart in your work. So whatever task God has given you through your work, have a sincere heart. Whatever your boss asks you to do, whatever task that may seem menial, that may seem beneath you, that may frustrate you, that may annoy you, God's Word says to do it with a sincere heart heart. Don't do it to please man. Do what pleases God. I preached a sermon about four and a half years ago now. It was when I almost first came here. We were working through the the first book that I I taught through, through Philippians. The sermon was out of Philippians chapter 2. And it's a sermon that my wife still to this day will quote back to me. The main point of the sermon was, stop complaining. And it was based on Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And the word for grumbling in the Greek text there I put on the screen, it's gunguzmas. It's an onomatopoeic word meaning that it sounds like what it's describing. And so like in English we have the word sizzle when you put a, a piece of meat on a hot grill, and it makes that sizzling sound. The word itself sounds like what it's describing. And the Greek language has this too. And gongusmas is one of them. It means grumbling. And so you can just imagine gongusmas. Oh, I don't gongusmas, right? It's an onomatopoetic word. And so whenever I complain, Sarah will sarcastically mutter the word gongusmas as a way to remind me what I preached all those years ago. I've come to regret preaching that particular sermon. Not really. It's a helpful reminder to me. There is a complaining, a grumbling attitude that we can have towards our work. But friends, view the work that God has given you to provide for you and for your family as a blessing to obey in everything those who are your earthly bosses, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Let there be no gangus massing in your heart. Be thankful to how God 
has provided for you in the work that he has given you to do. This won't be a problem for you if you're able to follow the next guideline, which is to work for the Lord. To work for the Lord, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And so whatever you do, uh, Paul speaks to slaves who, who vary in their roles and tasks. And he, and he tells them, whatever task, whatever jobs that you are given to do, work as though you are working for the Lord. Our jobs, where we work, are ministry. Because when we work for the Lord in them, we bring glory to God. And when we work poorly, when we don't honor those in authority over us, we bring dishonor to God. And that's precisely what Paul told Timothy. He said this, he said, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And so whether you are an engineer or an accountant, whether you are a teacher or a stay-at-home mom, whether you are retired and hopefully using your retirement to serve the Lord in, in meaningful ways, whatever stage of life that you are in, whatever task that you do, don't do it to please man. Work as though God Himself has given you this task because He has. When you work in such a way that disrespects the authority over you, you aren't just giving yourself a bad name. Paul says to Timothy that as a Christian, as an ambassador of Christ, you give God a bad name. You revile the name of God when you do not honor those who are in your authority. And this is true for any authority that we dishonor. And children, teenagers, when you disobey and dishonor your parents, it's not just that it, you look bad. If you claim to be a Christian and you dishonor your parents, then you are giving God a bad name. You are giving opportunity for God's name to be reviled. When we disobey our governmental officials so far as they are upholding just and right laws, if, if we then disobey them, then we are not just bringing dishonor to our name, we're, being, we're, we're reviling the name of God. When you dishonor your boss when you don't put the work in that you should, you dishonor Christ. Friends, that's not how a Christian works. We work to honor the Lord. When we work, even for sinful men or women who may treat us wrongly, we work with diligence and we work with grace. We work for the Lord when we work and we, and we work hard to, to have respect for the one that has authority over us. Friends, Christians should be the most dependable workers the, with the best attitudes, with the highest integrity because we work for the Lord and not for man. So we work for the Lord. McCall gives an additional motivation and encouragement to do this. He encourages them, last sort of guideline here, to work with a long-term view. Let me kind of show you what I mean by that. Pick up in verse 24. So here's sort of some motivation and encouragement. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. As a, as a Christian worker, someone who, who works hard, 
you may not get recognition for it. You may not get the raise that you deserve. No one may know of your work ethic or your dependability or your effort. But Paul says, God does. He knows. He sees what's in secret that maybe no one else recognizes. So Paul casts their eyes to the day when all Christians will be judged. And this Romans 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's clear that, that Christians one day will stand before God to give an account for their life. Both the wrongdoing and sin and the good deeds. And we're told this on this day. This is from 1 Corinthians 3. It said, Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer, suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So the work that you do for the Lord will be rewarded. The work you do for man, to please man, will be burned up and you will suffer loss. It says you won't lose your salvation. It's, we don't lose our salvation in this judgment. But there is a, a day coming where we give an account for our lives before a holy God. And that is a fearful and an awesome day. So dear friends, work for the Lord and receive the reward of it. Or work with an insincere heart, with a lazy heart, with a grumbling heart, with a man-pleasing heart. And Paul says that your works will be burned away before God. So have a long-term view in mind as you work. Consider the eternal outcome of the way that you approach work. From here, Paul moves to address masters. He spends a lot more time addressing the bond servants, the slaves, most likely because... There's a lot more bondservants in the church at Colossae. But there are masters. We know of, of at least one master who is, who is a member here at, at Colossae, which is Philemon. And so Paul is going to address the masters as well. He says this, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So those of you who are in some kind of leadership, those of you who are bosses, if you will, Instruction for you to act justly, to act fairly. Kindness should mark the way that you treat those who serve you in any capacity. And that's true for employers. That's true for church leaders. That's true for parents, for husbands, for governmental leader. Anyone who has been placed in a position of authority and leadership. You must see those who serve you as image bearers of God and you must lead them well. But this is, I think, what's most shocking in this text. is the reason why masters should treat their slaves, their, those who serve them, fairly. Look at the reason. It says, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul takes the slave-master relationship and he applies it directly to the Christian. And that's the language of the Bible all throughout. You see it in Romans 1, and Philippians 1, and 1 Timothy 4, and Jude 1, and Ephesians 6. We are slaves to Christ if you are a Christian. To be a Christian is to submit 
to God as your Lord, as your master. It's to say that he's the boss of your life and not you. It's to say, I will do everything that you have asked me to do revealed in your word. It's to live a life of complete surrender to Jesus Christ. If you ever get asked the question, are you pro-slavery? Surprise them by saying, yes. And then be very careful to explain exactly what kind of slavery you are in favor of. Not the wicked slavery of, of American slavery, but becoming a slave to Jesus Christ. Urge them to submit to King Jesus, to the, the true master, Jesus. And, and their response may be, if they are not a believer, I will never be a slave of any kind, to anyone, to which you should respond, you already are a slave. See, the Bible is very clear. You are a slave. You are either a slave to your sin or you are a slave to Christ. That's the argument, part of the argument of Romans chapter 6. You're a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. Either you bow to the will of your sinful desires or you are freed from your sin and bow to the will of a holy, perfect God. And there's nothing in between. A slave to sin or a slave to Christ. Either sin is your master or Jesus is your master. My friends, to be a slave of Jesus Christ is a joyous thing. Because he's the only one worthy of being a master. He's the only one deserving of the title Lord. He's the best boss. He's the perfect boss. You see, to be a slave of Christ is to truly be free. I like the way that R.C. Sproul says it. He says, The only freedom that man ever has is when he becomes a slave to Christ. So to you who are in your sin, a slave to your sin, perhaps you don't even realize it, perhaps you don't even recognize that you are a slave to your sin, and see the sin in your life. Maybe this, this morning as we started the, 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 the worship service by confessing our sins, maybe you thought of sin in your your own heart and recognize that there's sin in your life and there is freedom from it in Christ. True freedom. Freedom from the bondage of sin. Freedom to do that which you could never do apart from Jesus, which is to please God, to live for God, to live in such a way that honors the Lord. And that begins with faith in Jesus, trusting in Him who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And it leads to repentance, freedom from it, the ability to do what this text tells us to do. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And Christians, submit to King Jesus. Live a life of surrender to Him that you may honor the Lord in whatever you do. God, would you help us to live a life of submission to you as our master? And we're grateful uh, that you are kind and gracious and so good to us. And thankfulness for for your grace and thankfulness to the, the cross of Jesus whereby he provides forgiveness of sins. God, help us live for you, submit to you, surrender to you.
Father, if there's someone here that does not know you, help them recognize their sin. See the, the place that, that that sin leads them. An eternity separated from your goodness. God, grant them the faith to believe and repentance to turn from their sin and turn to the only source of forgiveness to you through your son, Jesus. That's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.